Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. I'm Lawrence Rouse, your host, and of course, I'm in the city of Oaks, Raleigh, North Carolina. And believe it or not, you are finally listening to our second episode. So, we have a great book in store for you the second time around. It's a book I first read back in 1994. Now, its subject matter, insofar as it can be narrowed down to any single thing, could be said to be somewhat relevant to a recurring epoch in my own life, a sort of boogeyman I find myself battling from time to time. In fact, you could say that it's an American boogeyman. Now, I'll leave it to you to find and read a copy of the book in order to see what I'm babbling about. Besides, that boogeyman is just the tiniest tease of a glimpse at all that this wonderful novel has to offer. So, the novel of which I speak was written by Paul Thoreau. It was first published in 1993 in the UK. The next year, 1994, it was published here in the US, and it was at some point during that year that I picked it up from the new book display at the Wake County Public Library, Cameron Village Branch. Now, this was back when David of David's Dumplings was the proprietor of a wonderful little Chinese restaurant in Cameron Village that was somewhat hidden in plain view behind bright red double doors with antique brass hardware. Getting back to the book, uh, I took Milroy back to my dorm and promptly began to fall in love with Jilly Farina, um, as does Milroy, I believe. Now, almost 20 years later, I'm holding Milroy the Magician in my hands once again. In fact, there's at least a small chance that it's the same copy I read back then. When I got ready to read from my own copy for this episode, I found it missing from our shelves. Uh, That discovery led me back to the Cameron Village Regional Library, where I checked out one of the two copies of the book still in the Wake County system. So, as I speak, I'm opening the book to the rear portion of the dust cover, where waiting for me is a handsome portrait of uh, Mr. Thoreau. And this is what the jacket informs. Paul Thoreau was born in Massachusetts in 1941, and published his first novel in 1967. His prolific fiction output includes Picture Palace, Mosquito Coast, My Secret History, and Chicago Loop. He has also written a number of travel books, among them The Great Railway Bazaar, The Old Patagonian Express, and Riding the Iron Rooster. He now divides his time between Massachusetts and Hawaii. Now, just so my left hand doesn't get jealous, I'm going to read the front of the book as well for a sort of preview of what lies ahead about 10 to 15 minutes from now. It reads as follows. Jilly Farina is 14, but so small that she wears younger kids' clothes. Her father is a drunk on the day of the Barnstable County Fair, so she goes by herself, and by that night her life has been transformed. When she walks into a tent to see Milroy the Magician, his eyes lighten from brown to green and fasten upon her. He performs miracles in front of Jilly's spellbound eyes and tells her he wants to eat her. He spirits her into his trailer, and for the first time in her forlorn young life, Jilly feels safe. He tells her that he has command over nine bodily functions, that he will train her to be his assistant, 
and that he will give her a sequined costume. But this is only the beginning. Milroy is a man like no other. A magician not simply of mere conjuring, but of true, baffling magic. He is a healer, too. A vegetarian and a health fanatic with a mission to change the eating habits of his beloved United States. In search of the perfect platform, he finds it in television as an evangelical preacher touting hygiene and the simple, pure foods mentioned in the Bible. From fairground magician to cult leader, Milroy is unstoppable. In his portrait of a man who is part genius, part eccentric, and part miracle worker, and of his complex and uneasy relationship with young Jilly, Paul Thoreau has created a remarkable parable of America today, a work of breathtaking imagination and resonance. Milroy the Magician displays the Arthur at the height of his fictional powers, and in Jilly and Milroy, he has created two truly unforgettable characters. So there you have it, Milroy the Magician, coming up after current events in our interview. Speaking of our interview, this episode I'll be sitting down with myself. Part of the main point of doing so is to open a call for all of you Raleigh readers out there to send me an email so we can set up a time and place for your interview. It's in a book. Thanks for coming back to find out what it is this fortnight. I'll see you after the page break. So at the risk of becoming a broken record, I'm starting our second segment of current events with a lament, a full-throated Koronach for the times gone by when I could actually manage to read. This year is slow, slow going. Two abandoned titles, both over half complete so far, and one whole month, March, where I didn't finish a thing. So to see what a contrast that is with last year, you can check out our newest page on our website, Current Events. Starting with a really old list from back in 2004 when I was fairly conscientious of keeping up with what I was reading, then skipping to last year when I got serious again about tracking titles, you can see exactly what I'm reading right now or have read lately. There's some pretty good stuff there along with a fair amount of completely necessary fluff. The very latest, uh, my most current event, so to speak, reading-wise, is a book I expect to finish within a day or two of this recording. The book is The Imposter by Jean Cocteau. Uh, hopefully any Francophiles out there will pardon my pronunciation. Now, I can't say I'm in love with the book, but there are flashes of brilliance, and I can definitely say that Jean Cocteau knows people. His characterizations rather sparkle. Final verdict-wise, though, as if anything with regard to literature can truly be final, I'll offer that it's a short title worth a peek if, say, for example, you find yourself on a transatlantic Atlantic flight to France. Now, because I desperately crave your approval, I'll share with you the nonfiction title I'm working my way through right now. Uh, it's by Nietzsche, uh, Marxism versus Existentialism, I believe. Um, need I say more? You know you should read it. 
If that's a non sequitur, I can offer a wonderful hour-long primer on Nietzsche in the form of a podcast out of Stanford. Uh, it's called Entitled Opinions with uh, Robert Harrison. It's, it's really an incredible podcast. I love it. Listen to it uh, almost every day on the way to work. So uh, check it out. I guess that's it for current events. Uh, not, not a lot this month. I'll try and uh, improve on that by accelerating the pace of my reading uh, this year. In the meantime, that's all I have to say about that. So, our interview today. Of course, I should start out by pointing out the fact that far less than an interview, it's a monologue. And since all monologues should be accompanied by apologies, here's mine. I'm sorry. You, however, are in a position to make sure this never happens again. Here's what you can do. Open your web browser to theoakcityreads.com or oakcityreads.com. Stare at your screen for a few seconds until you locate the link entitled Contact Us. Click on it. Shoot me an email telling me who you are, how much you love books, and when and where we can meet in any of the proliferate number of coffee shops in and around downtown Raleigh. I'll get back to you, and we'll meet, whereupon I will lug in two USB microphones and a laptop on its last legs, and we'll record your interview. Now, on my very long to-do list uh, associated with the podcast is a promise to get the requisite software to do phone interviews. Uh, so maybe we can do an interview that way. As well, if you're super shy and you own the necessary software, you can always record your own interview monologue and get it to me digitally. Now, if you should choose to go that route, don't forget to include an apology. Without further ado then, here is me talking to me and to you about books and reading. So, the format of our interview is pretty loose. At some point, the interviewee answers five questions. The first one is this. It's a busy world these days. How do you find the time to read? A busy world indeed, I answer. I work for Uncle Sam during the day, and three hours of every one of those days is spent driving to the building where I work as a small group instructor. Along with an 8-10 to 10 hour workday, that leaves about 13 hours a day to read a page or two along with everything else that needs to be done. So what I've found this year is that that number is every bit as unlucky as it sounds. Mainly the little reading I've managed so far this year has occurred on the weekends and during uh, some, some pretty big training break, breaks we've had. Uh, the upside of that is that during those long drives, I've finally come to understand the true beauty and utility of podcasts. Now, not making time to read is such a luxurious problem when you consider all this right and wrong with the world that I feel a little guilty complaining. That said, this podcast is about books, so I whine. Next question. How do you decide what to read? Now... As with most people, uh, my answer to this question is, is pretty various. I write myself, so a fair amount of the things that I read, I sort of do so with an eye toward improving my abilities as a writer. I read a, a fair amount, well, I used to read a fair amount of uh, instructional 
literature with regard to writing. Now I try more so to read people and authors who write the way I would like to write. Um, along that line, I've taken uh, a lot of suggestions uh, over the past couple of years from uh, Jonathan Franzen, uh, Norman Rush, and, uh, and a few other authors. But basically, I would just have to say that my decisions on what to read are informed on, or informed by, rather, my desire to become a better writer. So, the next question is this. Talk a little bit about books as objects. How many do you have? Do you prefer paper or digital? Well, if you listen to the very first podcast, uh, you know that my wife is a huge book lover, book lover rather, and uh, our home is, is just full of books. Um, we're constantly buying them too. I, I think I've probably picked up about 20 titles this week. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the, the local bookstores seem to always have just incredible books at, at prices that are, are designed to put me into the poorhouse uh, a little bit at a time. So uh, we are constantly buying books and usually by extension buying some new shelf or, or cabinet uh, to store them all. So um, that said, um, paper versus digital is, is an interesting question because with the Advent. I don't know if, if anyone listening is old enough to remember the very first digital readers. They were they were sort of, uh, and th these probably aren't even the very first. The very first that I remember uh, were put out by Microsoft uh, around the time when uh, the Gutenberg project was getting started, and and they were very uh, they were precursors of what we have now, but they they were no different than reading on on a screen, and, and so they weren't very good. But with a lot of the travel that I've had to do for work, I've, I've gotten into some serious financial uh, quandaries. Uh, do I leave behind some clothes or do I leave behind some books in, in this foreign country to which I've gone? And I'm now looking to have to pay 100 bucks or 150 bucks to bring everything back home. So digital readers with regard to travel are definitely the way to go. And the technology just keeps getting better and better. And uh, the current digital reader uh, I have, the black and white version at least, is, is almost just like reading the paper, but uh, a lot more comfortable if you're lying on your side. So, um, when I came up with the next question, uh, I thought I had a favorite book of all time. And, and I still sort of think that I do. But uh, having heard the answers of, of uh, a few of the interviewees that I've, that I've talked to so far, I've really uh, vacillated a bit uh, on, on the whole question of a favorite book of all time. But uh, That said, the question is this. What's your favorite book of all time and why? Um, so when I wrote that question, I certainly was thinking of Mating by Norman Rush. Uh, I read that book somewhere in the early 2000s, and Norman Rush is definitely one of, of my top five favorite authors, if not my favorite author. Um, but the more other people have answered this question, I, I realized that 
my favorite book of all time is, is sort of a shifting entity as well. I remember there was a time when I was convinced that my favorite book of all time was A Soldier of the Great War by Mark Helpern. I don't know if you've ever read that. You really should, though. It's an incredible, incredible book. It's just so beautiful and tragic and just it just comes full circle it uh i don't know why maybe maybe you've heard of em forsters the the uh what is it the elements of, of the novel something like that at any rate a soldier of the great war i think sort of encapsulates uh all the all the things that a, a great novel can be and uh and, and just really does so beautifully and in, in some of the most incredible language that you'll ever read. Um, so maybe maybe that's a, a horrible, horrible question. What's your favorite book of all time and why? And maybe in the future uh, we will revisit the fourth question and come up with something a little easier to answer and uh, a little more definite. Or or maybe not. Maybe, uh, maybe that ambiguity and... and the, the shiftiness of, uh, of a person's favorite book is, is just the sort of thing to get people talking. Uh, it's it certainly gotten me talking, so I'm going to shut up and get to the next question. Um, the, the next question, the last question, is what are you reading right now? And fortunately, I won't spend very much time on this at all because I've already answered it uh, in current events. I probably will finish up today The Imposter by Jean Cocteau. And a couple of days from now, I will finish uh, Marxism and Existentialism by uh, Nietzsche. I think I called it Marxism versus Existentialism earlier, um, but it's Marxism and Existentialism. And uh, it's, it's a really good read, a little dense, but, uh, but I've been reading a, a lot of philosophy over the past couple of years, and, uh, and, and it's slowly beginning to make a little sense. So uh, I'm going to thank myself for doing this interview and uh, I'm going to uh, once again uh, put out a call to to all and any Raleigh readers out there who, who'd like to discuss how much they love books and reading and uh, tell you to, to get on our website and get in touch with me and, uh, and we'll get together and, and uh, talk it over. And uh, that said, I believe that it's just about time to head into Milroy the Magician. So uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you after the break. Milroy the Magician by Paul Thoreau 1. County Fair I was supposed to meet my father at the Barnstable County Fair, and in a way I did, though he was not Dada. And I hated riding that awful bus from Mashpee to the fairground, though I did not have to take it back. How was I to know that it was my own day one, and that it would end in magic, after that morning had been so wicked? I had walked from Gaga's and Marston Mills to Mashpee, 
Rodada was living with Vera, his Wampanoag woman. And when I got there, he was blackout drunk, and she was gone. I looked at Dada lying on the floor and made sure he wasn't dead. He usually was drunk on his day off, but he had promised to be at the fair today. It was nine o'clock on a hot Saturday morning in July. The bus shook and farted on the broken road. I sat on the back seat, so nervous, I sucked my thumb the whole way. Milroy was the magician at the fair, famous for making an elephant disappear in a box on stage. I had seen him once with Dada and not forgotten. He had invited a small girl from the audience and turned her into a glass of milk and drank her. Jeekers! Dad had snorted and said, It's just a trick, Jilly. But I was still thinking, Jeekers! I walked past the Phonorama, past the Thunderboat, past the Wonders of the World posters and the Live Freaks banners, Pig with Human Hands and Human Feet, Wolf Boy, past Circus, Foskett with Yo-Yo the Clown and Popcorn the Wonder Dog, past Mr. Softy, Snow Cones, Hot Peanuts, Swine Show, and Elephant Rides, and Chubby Checker, Live Tonight, to the tent with the colored banner of the bald-headed, mustached man, Belteshazzar, Master of the Magicians, Milroy. When I went in, Milroy looked up in the middle of his magic, and his eyes rested directly on me, among all those people, and seemed to lighten from brown to green. Afterward, I got to know that look well. His eyes got a grip on you, and, as he said, the rest was simple. I sat down and stuck my thumb back into my mouth. I do magic in daylight, Milroy was saying. It was as though he recognized me from the last time with Dada and had heard me back then say jeekers. It made him drop something. He wasn't phased. This is my first day with my new hand. He plucked the hand out of his sleeve, squinted at it, then jammed it back on and began juggling with it. Three different objects. He juggled a bowling ball a lighted propane torch, and a rat-tatting chainsaw, all at once. He filled his mouth with five ping-pong balls and threw his head back and blew them around and then swallowed them, still juggling, still staring. I'm doing all this without a net. No one had ever stared at me like that before. He was leaning, too. Are you a net? he said to me. The people laughed. I was fourteen, but even so, small for my age, just under five feet tall, size two dress. Not that I ever wore a dress, most of my clothes being off the kids' rack usually, junior jeans and little t-shirts and size four and a half sneakers. 
no bust and hips like a boy and short hair. Why would anyone stare at her? I was so transfixed by him at first, I did not hear anything that he was saying. Then I saw him pulling a paper bag from his trouser cuff. Would you say I have bags in my pants? His eyes were still on me. He was tall and slender, balder than the picture of him out front, with, but with a bushier mustache, gentle in his movements, and he gave the impression of strength without bulk, lots of willpower, mind over matter, a real magician. Watching him, I wondered what had happened to that girl that he had turned into milk and drunk. He wore a tight black suit and riding boots. When he held something like a playing card or even a bowling ball, he did so with the tips of his long fingers. He had a hooked nose, too, and the way he stared and showed his teeth, he looked like he wanted to take a bite out of me. I had seen that his eyes had changed color, but they changed again, went paler, and became like a bird's blinkless eyes and pierced me. Milroy was stuffing a big, flapping chicken into the paper bag, but I was so intent on him, I did not hear what he was saying. The bird was fat with feathers, but didn't look twitchy and stupid the way chickens do. This one seemed slow and agreeable, like an old friend. Milroy twisted the top and punched the bag on its bulge, flattening the thing and leaving him holding shreds of paper. That was booby, and that gives a whole new meaning to the expression, chicken out, he said, looking in my direction. Now let's brighten this place up. A bunch of flowers popped from his sleeve, and he tweaked another nosegay from his breast pocket. One more bunch exploded from underneath the lapels of his coat. He arranged this bouquet, and while we clapped, he wiggled a ribbon of silk from between his fingers, then yanked on it. One silk scarf knotted to another on an endless chain, and while he went on yanking, he rolled up his sleeves. Where was this thing coming from? By the time the question popped into my mind, the scarves lay in a tall pile on the table. What was that? he said. That sound. These questions were all directed at me, and I almost spoke up because just then I heard a clucking sound. Get out of there, booby, you Chinese chicken! He moved his hands over the head of a small girl in the front row and pulled an egg out of her ear and another from her mouth. Got that bird worried. Milroy said. We all laughed, but he was looking straight into me. I kept my thumb in my mouth and locked my finger onto my nose. Milroy was so close, I could see that his face and the skin on his bald head were pebbly with sweat, and he was trembling and a bit breathless, as though this performance were taking most of his strength. 
The clucking came again like monotonous words in a foreign language. Milroy said, That's funny. Come up here, sugar. Gently pinching her small hand with two long magician's fingers, he lifted the small girl to her feet and guided her to the stage. She was about nine, with skinny white legs and falling down socks and braids. What's your name, honey? Who, me? Yep, you standing there with your teeth in your mouth. Lynette Trumpka. That's a real pretty name, Lynette. But say, you got a chicken anywhere on you? I don't think so. Smile. Or if you can't smile, make a funny face, Milroy said, still seeming to be talking to me. I'm psyched, the girl said, and everyone laughed. Milroy walked Lynette Trumpka around the stage so that we could all see she was wearing stiff little pedal pushers and a ketchup-stained T-shirt that had come untucked. Hey, what's this? Milroy said, and pulled two more eggs out of her ears. You sure you haven't got a chicken somewhere? The little girl shook her head. Nope, she didn't. Okay, Lynette, you've been a good sport, so take a bow. As she bent over, Milroy pulled a struggling chicken out from one of her pedal pushers. Lynette went rigid. It was the chicken he had called Booby, and it flapped and squawked until Milroy gripped its yellow legs. Then it relaxed and looked as plump as a feather duster. Fatso, Milroy said. With his fingers sinking into its feathers, he weighed Booby the chicken in his hand. But that reminds me, he went on, and leaned toward me. This is the greatest country in the world. Hey, I've got a personal tribute to the USA coming up at the end of Act One. But listen, hasn't there got to be something seriously wrong in a country where the poor people are fat and the rich people are skinny? Still plumping Booby in his hand as though he were thinking hard made him more serious rather than more ridiculous, and it seemed a true question to which there was no obvious answer. But what did it have to do with magic? What does this have to do with magic, you're thinking, he said. The answer is, the chicken interrupted him, clucking a three-syllable word. Right, booby. Everything. He fed the chicken with some corn kernels and swallowed as the chicken pecked at them in his palm. That sure makes me hungry, he said, approaching a man in the front row. I could use a chicken pot pie around now. And here's the chicken. Smiling at the man, he said, You are Kenneth Lesh from Hatchville, and I need your carrots and your turnips and your hat. The man was so surprised at hearing his full name uttered by Milroy that he stood up, flustered, and touched his hat, which was an old farmer cap, saying, Worth more feeds as Milroy drew a carrot 
out of one of the man's ears and a turnip from the other, then lifted off his cap. Before the man could protest, in went the chicken and the vegetables and two of the eggs Milroy had gotten from the little girl, Lynette Trumpka, cracking the eggs and chucking the shells along with the goo. Milk squirted from his fist, and by snapping his fingers, he produced a sprinkling of flour. Bleached flour and refined sugar, he said. And let's not forget a pinch of salt and a stick of butter. It's an American recipe. Meanwhile, the hat was struggling and squawking. Now let it cook. A match flared from his fingers, and he tossed it in. We were laughing while the farmer down front, Kenneth Lesh, if that really was his name, looked grumpy about his ruined hat and his humiliation. Milroy passed his fingers across the hat, then turned it over on his table, and when he lifted it up, there was a deep, crusty chicken pot pie steaming on the tabletop. He broke into the crust with a spoon and brought it out, filled with pieces of chicken meat and blobs of fat in the dripping gravy and yellow chicken skin. That's death in a spoon, he said, and closed his hand over it, and when he flexed and opened his fingers, it was gone. We laughed hard, but did not know why, because we did not connect this to anything he had said earlier. As for the hat, it was empty and clean, no damage done. He showed us the inside, and he handed it back to the puzzled farmer. But where had that clucking chicken gone? I'm still hungry, Melroy said, and pulled a sword out of the top of his trousers. Get the point? It was a real sword of glittering sharpness, about a yard long, silver and gold, with a tassel swinging from its handle. Milroy flourished it and whacked it against the table leg, chunking off a cookie of splintered wood. Then he looked down at me, and I stared back with my thumb in my mouth, my fist in my face. This is one way of getting iron in your, into your system. He gargled, threw his head back, and shoved the whole blade into his mouth, straight down, until the handle was jammed against his front teeth. His head was still tipped back, his stomach out, and he unbuttoned his black jacket and his shirt and waggled his finger at the point of his sword pressing against his belly just below his breastbone. I half expected the sword point to pop through his skin. When he slid the sword out of his mouth, the cheer from the audience was louder than ever. He put his hand up for silence, and we all went quiet again out of respect. Still awful hungry, Milroy said, and flung a lighted match into a saucer on the table. The spark gasped and flared into torch-like flames. 
Using a pair of tongs, he fed himself fiery sponges and chomped on them, then made a torch and chewed on those flames. Smoke and fire flew out of his mouth and seemed to singe his mustache. He was sweating. His head gleamed. His eyes were red in the firelight. I had seen that long sword go down. I could see that these were real flames he was eating, and I was near enough to feel the heat. Soon there was no more fire. Milroy had eaten it all. He smacked his lips as though he had just had a meal and said, Delicious and better for you than some stuff I could name. But fire eating makes you thirsty. He opened his hand and revealed a pitcher brimming with water. Remember the wedding feast at Cana? The very first miracle according to John? Watch closely. Still glancing at me, now a bit suspiciously, as though I might be wearing something of his, he poured a stream of water from the pitcher into a glass, and as it splashed, it turned a whiny red. But just to show you I'm not a one-trick pony, here's a variation that John didn't mention, Milroy said. Maybe Jesus didn't know it, or was still working on his technique. Now he had a pitcher of red wine, and some of this he poured into an empty glass, and it turned clear and colorless. Wine into water. A much better idea in these days of alcohol abuse, he said, setting these pitchers and glasses aside. He smiled at our applause, lifted a square pane of glass onto the little table, tapped his knuckles on it, and then placed a circular crystal fishbowl on that, giving it a little spin. To the water in the fishbowl, he added the red wine from the second pitcher and then carefully wrapped the top of the fishbowl with clinging plastic. He sloshed the red liquid to show us it was sealed, and as it moved in the fishbowl, the mingled water and wine had a swimming stripiness, like a drowned flag. Milroy rolled up his sleeve again. Just the sight of his muscular arm seemed to be a warning that something big was coming. And it was. He shoved his bare arm through the plastic, pulled out a length of silk streamers, and kept pulling until it was hundreds of feet long and a yard wide. We clapped like mad. But he was not finished. Music played, stars and stripes forever, as he dug into the fishbowl again and hauled out a succession of banners that turned out to be a huge American flag, which he hung up on the back of the stage, all this patriotic bunting covering the back wall, where there had only been empty space before. Then he reached into the folds of the enormous flag, and using both arms lifted out a live bald eagle, which he held up for us to see. Our cheering drowned the music, 
but Milroy did not seem to hear it. He looked dignified, holding the flapping eagle, and he turned to me and stared as he had before, and leaned over to where I sat in the second row. Popping my thumb out of my mouth made the sound of a cork being yanked from a bottle. Even through the cheering crowds, his voice was distinct as he said, I want to eat you. So I stayed for his second show. Two. Waiting for Milroy's second act to begin, I walked around the fairground, looked at quilts, watched draft horses pulling slabs of cement, peeked at the baby pigs that had been born at the swine show tent earlier that morning. Yet after what I had seen, nothing else looked the least bit interesting to me. Not Robinson's racing pigs, not Popcorn the Wonder Dog climbing a ten-foot ladder and jumping off, not the giant stuffed panda prizes at the skee-ball stand. I spent the last of my money on a root beer float, a chili dog, and a twist of fried dough, then went back for Act Two. There were boxes and cabinets on stage, their flat surfaces shiny with sequins and painted red and decorated with signs of the zodiac. What caught my eye was a wickerwork coffin with belts in the middle and handles at each end, a lovely object so finely woven that when Milroy heaved it up slowly, it stretched and mewed like a live thing that had been disturbed. Know what the word tangibilized means? Milroy asked. We said no in a sort of moan. I'll show you, he said. But I'm going to need some volunteers. Why more than one? Well, this might not work out. Might lose one. Might need a replacement. I was laughing against my thumb when Milroy took a stride toward me. How about you, miss? In the same movement, he lifted his hand and pointed to me, near enough for me to take hold of his finger, which I did, as he eased me out of my seat. He led me to the stage with his hot, damp hand on mine. Was this magician nervous? And if so, why? It made me think again about his tricks. With a sweaty hand like that, he might not do them right. And this is your friend, he said, and beckoned another girl with his outstretched finger. She was younger than me, but about my size, and was black, and wore jelly shoes. I had never seen this girl before, but we were both so nervous we kept our mouths shut and stared at the wooden floor of the stage while the crowd of people laughed at us. Something I want you to do for me, Milroy said, leading the girl by the hand. But first, what's your name? Zula Firkins. Lovely little name. You've been eating marshmallows. Tons of them. Too bad. 
Now just hop into this basket, Zula, and we'll get started. You gonna do anything to me? The girl asked, screwing up one eye. Not a thing, Zula, Milroy said. I just want you to experience the interior of this Indian basket. I won this basket in a psychic duel with the Sadhu some years ago in the pink princely province of Rajasthan in India. As soon as Zula Firkins was lying inside the coffin-shaped wicker basket and the lid was shut tight and the straps buckled, Milroy opened a box that was filled with swords. He drew out a long glittering one that looked like the sword he had stuck down his throat that morning. He slashed it in a circle over his head, whipping the air, then plucked a piece of wicker off the basket and whittled it smaller to show how sharp the sword was and clamped his teeth on this toothpick. Everyone laughed in fear and excitement, and you thought of Zula Firkins flopped on her back inside the basket. Watch me, he said. He raised this sword over the basket and then drove it into the middle, kashuk, right up to its handle. He picked up another sword and did it again, and this one went in with a tearing of wicker, like someone slashing shredded wheat. Go ahead, take a sword and stick it in. What did you say your name was? Jilly Farina. You had a snack, Jilly. Root beer and fried dough. He inhaled. And a hot dog. People laughed, but how did he know? I said, I was wicked hungry. Weenie worship, he said. That's the worst part of county fairs. And what has happened to your legs? Bruised when I had been thrashed with the strap by Gaga over the broken butter dish. But I hesitated to say so. Never mind. Don't tell me, Milroy said. I can't stand violence. Now just pick up a blade, sugar, and start stabbing this basket. No eyelashes gave him eyes that were so pale and attentive that his gaze did not stop at my face, but went so deep into me, I felt he knew my whole life and every pure secret and sorrowful joy in my heart. He handed me a sword, which was heavier than I expected, and I pushed it through the long wicker basket into the thick body of Zula Firkins, and it went slow, as though making a hole, like a knife into meat. Take that, Milroy said, and that, and, oh gee, something's leaking out of the basket. Jilly, that gooey stuff. You suppose it's blood? I don't know, I said, not wanting to look down. And the crowd howled at me. Zula, you all right in there? Milroy called out. No voice or any sound came from the basket, which was now bristling with swords. I've been doing this trick for years. Milroy said, 
and it's only gone wrong a few times. I hope to holy heck this isn't another of them. What do you think, Jilly? Trying to shrug my narrow shoulders only made me feel smaller. I said, I don't know. I just love that, Milroy said. Matter of life and death. Don't know. His perfect mimicking of my voice and the way I blinked made me feel not weak, but secure, protected, as though he had power over me. Let's look inside this Indian basket, he said. That's the only sure way to find out. Undo those buckles, Jilly, like a good sport. I crouched down and unfastened the straps. Then Milroy lifted the lid, propping the basket up. It was empty, except for the sword blades, six of them, sticking through the wicker every which way and smeared sticky red. Zula's gone, Milroy said. Zula's disappeared. Humming insincere sounds of pity in his sinuses, he yanked the swords out and wiped them clean with a bloody rag. You're going to have to go look for her, Jilly. Think you can do that? I'm wicked nervous. He smiled at that and then whispered in a kindly way to me. Let's roll, sugar. Boot it. You'll be fine. It was my first step into the unknown at Milroy's command. And even then, more than climbing into a basket, it seemed like my willing but ignorant descent into a dark tunnel in which I trusted him to make me safe until I emerged from the other side. Jarred and shrunk by a blinding light, into a space he controlled like a king, yet one I had never known before. I hesitated, because the alternative was retreating the way I had come, back to Gaga's on the awful bus, back to my room, my small bed, and my posters. Milroy's eyes were on me, but I knew the choice was mine. The thing creaked as I stepped in, and it went dark as the lid came down on top of me. I lay there, holding my belly with one hand and sucking my thumb and thinking, let's roll, sugar, boot it, you'll be fine. Next thing I knew, Milroy was talking loudly to the crowd, and I was being shaken into a cloth bag, head first, pitch dark, dusty, and no end to it, like crawling through a stitched-up grain sack, a suffocating dream of narrowness, with death at one end and birth at the other. Meanwhile, Milroy was calling out, now you go find Zula, honey. She's down there somewhere. And just to give you some ventilation, I'm going to stick some swords into this basket. Open it up a little. Kashuk! Kashuk! I heard the blades going in, slicing through the wicker, but I didn't feel a thing. Only sniffed the thin, 
dusty darkness, and still Milroy was talking. Strange thing, losing a little girl. Be pretty darn strange if we lost both of them. Ha! But let's have a look. The lid creaked open. I heard it, not far off. Then I heard the crowd laugh in relief and surprise. Why, hello there, Zula, he said. Now you know the meaning of tangibilized. But where's our friend Jilly? In a sulky voice, the small girl said, She ain't no friend of mine. And I imagined her climbing out of the basket, the wicker creaking against her knees. Let's have another look, Milroy said. The lid crunched, the audience groaned, and in my darkness I heard Milroy saying, I've had serious lacerations. I've had puncture wounds, I've had splinters, but this is my first disappearance. He sounded worried and helpless. Maybe she's behind the table. No. Or the curtain. Or this box. No. She's gone, folks. She booted it. I'm very sorry. I'll try to do better tomorrow. I'm right in here, I yelled. But it was like the dream in which you panic, yet your screech stays in your mouth. I tried again, but I sensed that the sound was trapped inside the bag, if it was a bag. Things went quiet, and after a while, I felt myself being hoisted gently off the floor and carried. When the bag was open, I had to squint because of the brightness, the way hamsters do when they are born, blinded and squirming. I was in a small room, a trailer I knew by its tin walls and its narrowness, like the cabin of a sailboat, but with a dog barking outside, the hurdy-gurdy music from the fairground, and in the distance, chubby checker singing, Come on, baby, let's do the twist, the evening show. Time to eat, Milroy said, and no weenie worship. The fragrance on his fingers was from a small, cut-open, orangey fruit that he was holding to my nose. Kind of revives you, doesn't it? Filling my nostrils, it entered my head and soothed it with the sweetness of a blown-open blossom. Comfort me with apples, he said. They knew what they were talking about. Song of Solomon, 2-5. By apple, they meant apricot, which this is. Here, have a bite. He put it into my mouth and watched me while I chewed it. There was another, stronger odor clinging in the close-together cupboards of the room, and Milroy knew I was wondering. Pottage, he explained. He passed his fingers over my face. Because you don't need meat in your mouth. I blinked at him to show I was listening, and not frightened. 
or meat in your body, he added. He was smiling, inhaling, enjoying the odors. Breads, grains, bitter herbs, infusions, soups, the odd spice. Chanting this list, he might have worried me, the way you are when a strong, bald stranger with the mustache over his mouth blocks your way and utters a garbled sentence, and you feel he is insane. Yet I was soothed, as though by a promise of well-being, and with the taste of the apricot still on my tongue, sensed a hunger for the food he mentioned rise like yearning in my body, and I wanted to eat. Setting a steaming bowl of thick, reddish paste on the table next to me, Milroy smiled again. Parched pulses, he said. They knew a thing about fiber. I ate two spoonfuls and felt more secure. I don't eat anything with a face, Milroy said. Thinking hard, I said, I love fried clams and quahogs and scallops. He muttered, quahogs. He muttered, scallops. He smiled. And I felt as I had in the show tent when he imitated the way I spoke. Overwhelmed, but protected by him. Made safe by the way he knew me. And I don't eat anything with a mother, he said. Sounds good, I said. But what did that mean? I suppose we'll have to call your mother and tell her you'll be late. I don't have a mother, I said. He stroked his mustache, the way you stroke a cat to calm it. Mama passed on, I said, and touched my face the way I always did when I said the word. He saw me do this and understood. I have a grandmother. What's your granny like? Everyone calls her Gaga. I know the type, he said, and I know she's not very kind to you. As he traced the welts on my shins with his fingertips, just his touch seemed to soothe them. She thrashes me, I said. Gumpy used to stop her, but he passed on too. I'll come up with something, Milroy said, and he sighed. She thinks I'm with Dada tonight. And where's Dada? Drunk, I said. What does he do when he's sober? A whole bunch of stuff, I said. Mama, Dada, Gumpy, Gaga. The front porch folks from Hell City, USA. Everyone's family. I know these people well, Milroy said and he drew another long breath. Maybe you would be happier here with me. His eyes were huge and damp and gleamingly mirrored my own face. Go on, Angel. Eat some more. I can't, I said, choking a little, and still with unchewed food in my mouth, I said, I don't think I'll be able to swallow you until you tell me where I'm supposed to sleep.
gagging gave me tears in my eyes, which Milroy could have misunderstood. In your own sweet, safe room, he said. Will you stay? If you promise not to hurt me, and if you teach me some magic. Milroy took my hand, did not grip it, but let it rest on his soft fingers the way he had held the fragrant apricot. I'll never hurt you. We'll be strong and we'll always be friends, he said. I know what you're thinking, but don't worry. I'm not a nutbag. Guess what? That's all, folks. That is the end of episode two of It's in a Book. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed it. A uh, few housekeeping details. Um, the URL, It's in a Book, was taken by some horrible internet squatter out there who uh, wanted to charge an exorbitant amount uh, to purchase it. It's just kind of been sitting there for a couple of years, uh, not doing anything, but uh, such is such is life. So we picked up the URL, uh, the Oak City Reads and or OakCityReads.com. I, I actually really, really like it. And I hope you'll go there often to download the latest episode of It's in a Book. Um, a few additional details. Obviously, it's been much longer than a fortnight since we first recorded and hopefully with the help of all you readers out there we will make sure that doesn't happen again we already have a couple of interviews recorded for our next two episodes and we are rapidly on the trail of additional interviews so um it's been a pleasure and uh, Kanye West and a few of his friends are going to play us out to the tune of The Magic Man. The Magic Man can make the roof disappear. See you later. You're messing with this joker but you need a king cuz he a club anybody trying to jack his queen. I'm gonna call a spade Stay from the start. He gave you diamonds, should have gave you his heart. You see, jealousy strikes again. The sheet said, I'm just trying to wave at the man. Then he turned her eyes black and blue with the wave of his hand. The magic man. From a dime piece to pieces of a dime bag Lady, each package, new baggage Implemented a tragic plan A volunteer from the audience for the magic man I upped out my hat with natural flowers She wanted work but wouldn't put in any actual hours Her dude had the keys to supernatural powers So she slid with this new guy who could sue fly That white tiger like Siegfried and Roy Indeed the boy had that sweet street magic like David Blaine And she made it plain If I had any advice that could save her I could just save it, man And I can't understand that, baby She said you ain't no Houdini 
Oh, I know I ain't. I am an artist that can help you escape. Do y'all feel that? Or is it cold just in here? For his next trick, ta-da, he made a soul disappear. Magic man. I am the magic man. Got the world in his world in his Hey, everybody. Well, where's my dessert? Five fifty six AM April twenty eighth, two thousand thirteen. Happy birthday, Mama.